This is the record that God has given to us eternal life, and this life is in His Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. He who believes on Him is not condemned, but he who believeth not is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. For there is no other name under heaven given among men, whereby we must be saved. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing, is able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. For of him and through him and to him are all things, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Before we begin our study this morning, let's bow our heads together and open in a word of prayer. Our Father, we do thank you that we have this privilege and opportunity to study your word this morning, to be refreshed by the truth of your word, that as we remember our Lord praying to you in his high priestly prayer, Father, sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. It is your word, which is absolute truth, guaranteed to us, revealed to us, our true apostles and prophets through the uh, filling of God the Holy Spirit, the inspiration of God the Holy Spirit, so that we know that we have your word, we have your sufficient revelation to us, and it is by means of your word under the filling ministry of God the Holy Spirit that we are enabled to grow and advance spiritually, that we are empowered in our spiritual life in advance, that we may grow to spiritual maturity and glorify you. Now, Father, as we study your word today, we pray that we would be refreshed and challenged by what we study. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We're continuing our study in Third John. Third John, right after First and Second John, and just prior to Jude, just that little postcard of an epistle toward the end of the New Testament. Third John. Now we have gone through the first eight verses. The last three we've hit. Uh, verse six, a little more detail. Seven and eight we'll cover, wrap up in a little more detail today. But we have gone through this epistle in terms of sort of the subjects that each paragraph focuses on or each section focuses on. And, and verse, the first uh, four verses, the emphasis was on Truth, walking in truth. In fact, that phrase was used twice. John writes this epistle to a member of a local church. We don't know where the church was. It could have been in Laodicea, could have been in Pergamum, could have been in Colossae, could have been in any number of the smaller towns surrounding Ephesus. We don't know. There is a specific problem that he is dealing with. And that problem begins to be focused on in verses 9 through 12. But he begins the epistle with praise from verses 2 through 8, and that can be divided into two sections. 2 through 4 focused on a praise of Gaius personally because of his relationship to the truth, because of his devotion to the truth. talks about the fact that uh, John loves Gaius in the truth, or by means of the truth, by means of doctrine, in verse 1. In verse 3, he says, I rejoice greatly when brethren came and testified or gave witness of the truth 
that is in you. And then twice, in, once in verse 3, again in verse 4, he talks about the importance of walking in the truth, that Gaius is walking in the truth, and that for John himself there is no greater joy than to hear that those to whom he is writing, those who are in his congregation, are applying the word on a consistent basis. Now, when we look at verses 3 and 4, the phrase walking in the truth, you have the preposition in plus the dative of aletheia, and there's no, def- there's no article there in, in the Greek. However, the noun itself is inherently definite, so it should be translated walking in the truth in both places. Now, what is the truth? This is foundational to understanding what is going to happen by way of contrast in verses 9 through 12. In these first eight verses, there is praise for Gaius, and then you just flip over. It's like from going from light to darkness. One, the example of Gaius in the first eight verses who's walking in the light, and the example of Diotrephes in the second half who is walking in the darkness. And the difference is their response to truth. This is what makes the difference between a believer who is advancing in the spiritual life, a believer who is going to be rewarded at the judgment seat of Christ, and a believer who is uh, a success in the spiritual life, and, the, and a believer who is just an absolute failure. And the difference is their relationship to the truth. Now, Jesus prayed to the Father in the high priestly prayer in John 17, Father, sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. That gives us our foundational definition of what truth is. It is the word of God. It is absolute truth. It is not relative truth. Gaius has a positive response to the truth of God's word, and he is uh, learning it, he is responding to it, and he is advancing in his spiritual life. So John begins by emphasizing the importance of truth in the first nine verses, and I mean first eight verses, and as we see in verse eight, he concludes that section with uh, a reference to being fellow workers of the truth. He praises Gaius for his personal priorities in putting truth and the knowledge of doctrine above everything else. In verse 5, he praises Gaius because he uh, lives life faithfully. He acts faithfully, or literally what he does, he does in a faithful manner. We could translate it even, you do a faithful thing, or you exhibit faithfulness in what you do. Whatever Gaius was doing in relationship to the brethren and strangers, and we have studied that in detail, noting that these were traveling evangelists and missionaries, and that Gaius treated them with uh, tremendous hospitality and generosity. But the point of acting faithfully, saying that you do a faithful thing or what you do, you do faithfully, is that uh, Gaius recognized that first and foremost what he was doing for the evangelists and the missionaries was directed toward God. And that concept of being faithful, he is faithful in application of the word. He is faithful towards God. He is not being faithful towards these missionaries who are classified as brethren. Those would be uh, men he knew and strangers, those he did not know. But he is motivated first and foremost by God. Now, what he is doing is praised as love. They, these have come 
to John after being with Gaius and borne witness of your love so that his generosity is viewed as an act of love. And we saw the principle that personal love for God, that is his faithfulness towards God, personal love for God always precedes personal love for mankind. Now, that's an important principle. Personal love for God must precede personal love for mankind. Now, why is that? Because when you make a statement, I love you, or somebody makes that statement to you, that love is only as good as the integrity that undergirds that statement. If there is no integrity there, then there is no value in that statement. If someone says they love you and they are... uh, manipulative, if they are self-serving, if they're just out to get something, then it means nothing. For love to have any meaning, it has to be grounded in integrity. And for the believer, that integrity is not what resides in the believer, but God. That's where it starts. We have to understand the integrity of God, his perfect righteousness, which is the standard of his integrity, his justice, which is the application of that integrity. The love of God is the expression of that integrity to man under the concept of grace, which is unmerited favor. So integrity undergirds love. Now, personal love for God then becomes our motivation for that. uh, That personal love for God becomes our motivation for impersonal love for all mankind. We must have a ground of integrity first. So personal love for God becomes that motivation. The more we come to know God, the more we love God. The more we come to love God, the more we are going to execute his commandments. That's what John emphasized back in back in 1 John. And the greatest of these commandments is that we love one another as Christ loved us. That is the new commandment for the church age. We can't just jump into that. We've studied it many, many times. It's not an emotional love. It's not a sentimental love. It's not a love based on how you feel. It is a love based on the integrity of God. Therefore, we are able to love the unlovely, love the undeserving, love our enemies, and we are able to love those who hate us because our love is not based on who and what they are, But our love is based on who God is and what Jesus Christ did on the cross. So the principle, personal love for God, always precedes impersonal love for all mankind. Now, impersonal love for all mankind is designated impersonal because it doesn't mean that we have to know the object of love. Now, a lot of people have reacted to that terminology and classifying it as impersonal. I can't seem to come up with anything else that expresses the concept better. Unconditional love does to some degree, but unconditional doesn't really focus on the idea that you don't need to know the person. Now, if we look at Gaius, here's a situation where Gaius is expressing tremendous impersonal love to two groups of people, those that are classified as brethren and strangers. Now, the context does not allow us to interpret strangers as unbelievers because they're missionaries. They're traveling evangelists. They're strangers in that Gaius doesn't know them. Now, this is the point. Is impersonal love means you don't have to know the object of love. He is opening the door of his home and giving tremendous hospitality to 
evan traveling evangelist he doesn't know he doesn't know a thing about him it's not because he likes them it's not because they're great friends not because they go back a long way together they are strangers and that is the emphasis of impersonal love is we treat people on the basis of who and what uh god is and what christ has done on the cross we treat people on the basis of god's personal love so therefore Personal love for God always precedes impersonal love for all mankind. Second principle we get out of this is that real love or virtue love demands integrity and that the source of integrity must be God, not man. It's not in us and it's not in the object of our love. It must be grounded on an integrity that is never shaken, an integrity that never moves, and that is found in the immutable integrity of God. Further, what we learn from this passage, or what we see exemplified in this passage, rather, is that for personal love to have any, or impersonal love to have any stability, for impersonal love to have any stability, it must be based on grace orientation. It must be based on grace orientation. Now, we have gone through the spiritual skills, the ten spiritual skills are stress busters many, many times, so often that I hope you dream about them at night. You know, instead of dreaming about sheep jumping over fences, maybe you can try to go to sleep by thinking about sheep jumping over blocks that have the initials of the stress busters on them. There are three, well, there's one foundational block Let's put it, draw it up here like this. And that is confession. And that is also represented in our diagram of the soul fortress by the door because that's our entry point. Whenever we sin, we're out of fellowship. And whenever we're out of fellowship, we're no longer filled by the Holy Spirit, empowered by the Holy Spirit. We no longer have rapport with God. In fact, we are grieving and quenching the Holy Spirit, the Scripture says. And so there's no spiritual advance whatsoever. The way to recovery is confession of sin. Now, I want to add a note here. Uh, I often do this, and I haven't done this in a while. Conf- we have to understand what confession is. There's so much religious uh, baggage that comes with that term, confession. And that is because somehow people get the idea that the purpose for confession is to impress God. We have to be sincere. There has to be some sort of emotional content to confession. And so to counter that, I often use the illustration from from court that when you're in court, and confession is a legal term, when you're standing in court and the judge is arraigning you, and for some something, whether it's a traffic infraction or whatever it might be, the, the first question is, are you guilty or not guilty? He doesn't care how you feel about it. The judge just wants to know, are you guilty or not guilty? So confession doesn't include, as part of the core meaning of the word, emotion, feeling, sincerity, remorse. That's That just isn't there. Confession is simply admission of guilt. So forgiveness is not based on how you feel. Forgiveness is based on admission of guilt. Now, there have been some folks who've come along and they've said, well, you can confess your sins and you can just, um, 
even while you're confessing, you may be thinking about it and, and you know, you enjoyed the sin, whatever it was. You had a good time and, and you're kind of remembering and having fond memories of that sin at the same time you're confessing it. And we've all been there. We've all done that. But you see, the problem with that is that at the same time we're admitting guilt, while we are forgiven, we're rehearsing that sin all over in our minds and we're just, it's like a revolving door. We go in and out. And we're just back in fellowship for maybe uh, a second or two because we're committing a mental attitude sin all over again. Uh, also, on the other hand, some people who really impress themselves with the horribleness of their own sin are now trying to impress themselves with their guilt. And so they think God is impressed by their guilt and their remorse. They're out of fellowship and back. You know, I mean, they're in fellowship and back out of fellowship in a matter of, of a, a microsecond also. The point is that confession is simply a doorway to get back in fellowship, and the whole point is to stay in fellowship. And the Greek uses the word meno, M-E-N-O, which means to abide, to stay, to remain. The point's to stay there. Now, how you feel may not affect your forgiveness, but it certainly may affect the penalty or the longevity of your fellowship. So if you start confessing your sin and get all wrapped up in how much fun you had, well, you're going to have to do it all over again. So the point of confession as a foundation, though, is it just gets us back in the spiritual uh, ball game, as it were, so we can advance and go forward. The next two bricks that go on top of this are the walk by means of the Holy Spirit or the filling of the Holy Spirit, two different terms that function on uh, the same way, we're filled by means of the Holy Spirit and we walk by means of the Spirit and they operate together. And then the other brick is a faith rest drill where we're actually focusing on a promise or a doctrine and we're trusting God in relationship to that uh, promise or that doctrine. That's foundational. Then what's built on that are the next two steps, which are grace orientation and doctrinal orientation. Now these five form the foundation for the whole spiritual life. If you don't master these skills, then you will never make it anywhere in the spiritual life. And what we see is that Gaius has mastered these skills. That's what it means to walk by means of truth, and we spend a lot of time going over that. Grace orientation means that we realize that the issues in life are not based on who and what we are. Spiritual issues in life are based on who God is and what Christ did on the cross. He did all the work. We simply accept it. It's not meritorious. And the point of that is that once we understand grace in relationship to salvation, then we have to start applying that same grace in relationship to life and those around us. And when we understand that God deals with us not on the basis of who we are or what we do, then we can apply that towards those around us and begin to deal with them not on the basis of who they are or what they have done, but on the basis of who God is and what Christ did on the cross. And then we are living a gracious life, and we are treating people in grace with generosity. Now, this isn't just some free-for-all, however we think grace ought to go. It has to have some sort of, there's some sort of, um, 
boundaries, there's a guidebook, and that's the Word of God, and we must orient our thinking to the Word of God and to truth, and that's doctrinal orientation, which is emphasized in this passage with the concept of truth. So what we see here is that Gaius is a believer advancing in spiritual maturity. He is obviously in fellowship. He is obviously walking by the Holy Spirit. He is obviously using the faith rest drill. He is clearly grace-oriented because of his generosity towards the traveling evangelists and missionaries. And he is clearly doctrinally oriented because of John's emphasis on his walk by truth. So from all of that, we see that that. He is, he is a maturing believer. He's hit spiritual maturity, and this is exemplified in everything that he does, so that when these traveling evangelists and missionaries come, uh, John says, when you send them forward on their journey, you do so in a manner worthy of God. You're doing well. So it's a manner worthy of God, high praise, because uh, Gaius recognizes that he needs to treat each one of these individuals as if they were the Lord Jesus Christ himself because that's who they are representing. And that is the attitude that we should have towards towards not just those in the ministry but towards everyone. They are a representative. Every believer is an ambassador for the Lord Jesus Christ. But in an even higher way, we need to recognize that those who are missionaries and evangelists and pastors that these are people we should bestow. The Scripture says those who rule well are worthy of double honor. We need to honor them in in our not just financial support but prayer support, but in every possible way, and that is what Gaius was doing. Now, we used our study of this the last few times to talk about missionaries and the importance of missions and the expansion of missions down through history. And today, tonight, or this morning rather, this morning I want to conclude this little section and get into the next section because what we are going to see here by way of contrast is Gaius's attitude towards the missionaries is based on his attitude towards truth. And in contrast, we will see Diotrephes and that his attitude rejecting the missionaries is also based on his attitude towards truth. And then from that, we're going to take another brief look at what's going on in missions today, the dangerous doctrines that are permeating what is known as missiology, the study of missions, and how it threatens uh, the very core of missionary activity that goes out from the United States. We won't get into all of that this morning, but we're going to lay the foundation this week and get into some of these other issues next week. And it doesn't just have to do with missions, because at the very core of this, you'll find are issues related to the impact of Christianity on culture and cultural beliefs. And we're going to see that the whole concept of multiculturalism, which affects not only missions, but it also affects things like like uh, uh, how different subcultural groups in this country are are treated in terms of Christianity and the Word of God and attempts to reinterpret the Word of God because of pressure from radical feminism, pressure from the uh, homosexual lobby, pressure from various other groups who want to make culture an absolute 
and the Bible relative. And once you do that, you end up reinterpreting and retranslating the Scripture so that the truth becomes watered down. Truth becomes a a uh, commodity that is no longer absolute. And this has tremendous implications, and so uh, we'll get into some of that next time. But like I said, it, 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 we've got to lay the foundation, and we'll do that this morning. Now we come to verse 7. John encourages Gaius and praises Gaius because he sends them on in a manner worthy of God. And in verse 7, we have an explanation. This is an independent sentence. It is not uh, connected to the previous verse, and it begins in the Greek with the uh, condition, uh, with the explanatory particle gar, which indicates he is giving a reason, an explanation for Gaius's behavior. Why Gaius is so grace-oriented and so generous and so open and warm with these traveling evangelists and missionaries. He says, "For on be." Uh, be- for they went forth, they went forth uh, for the sake of his name or for his name's sake. And the way that's translated in the King James is more causal. It's more of an explanation for they went forth for his name's sake, taking nothing or receiving nothing from the Gentiles. Now let's break this down a little bit to understand uh, the import of the Greek. First of all, the the uh, uh, it starts off as with an explanatory gar for or in, an, giving an explanation uh, could be translated because they went forth and this is the um, this is the verb ex uh, erkamai which means to go out to travel to go on a journey to go on a on a mission they went forth they went out uh, they went out from us. Uh, that is, they were sent out from a local congregation. They went out from us for his name's sake. And here we have the, pre- the Greek preposition, huper, uh, plus the genitive. This usually has the idea or the meaning of, literally it means to be over something, but it's never used in that literal sense in the Greek. New Testament's only used in a metaphorical sense, and that has the idea of on behalf of, on behalf of, for the sake of, it in many passages has the idea of substitution. Some places it has the idea of instead of, and it recognizes the fact that that Gaius looks at these missionaries and they have gone forth for the sake of his name. And name here refers to character, as we've seen many, many times, that in the uh, Hebrew world, the name represented something about the essence or the character of the thing. And so we have passages such as Hebrews, or excuse me, Acts 4.12, nor is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby, where, whereby we must be saved. The emphasis isn't on the nomenclature. It isn't on like in, in, in our way of thinking. We think of a name as simply a verbal tag, you know, something to indicate what something is in distinction from something else. It has no inherent connection to the object itself. But in the Hebrew way of thinking, a name represents the character 
of something. And you discover that in many Old Testament passages where someone has one name and then later on they're given another name to indicate something about their character. So when we read passages that emphasize the name of God or the name of Christ, it's em- emphasizing who he is and what he did. And this is simply a circumlocution for talking about the Lord Jesus Christ. That the passage says, for they went forth for his name's sake in light of his character and all that he did. He went to the cross and he died there for our sins as our substitute. So Gaius recognizes that these itinerant evangelists, these missionaries, have a mission, they have a cause, they have a purpose, and he recognizes that their cause is his cause, their purpose is his purpose. As a believer, he recognizes that Jesus Christ gave a mission statement to the disciples, and that is to make disciples or learners of all nations, to take the gospel to all the nations, and that as as a believer, you're an ambassador for Christ, and you have a role in that to some degree in terms of personal witnessing. But there are also those who take on a higher standing, a formal standing, sent out by local churches that are designated as missionaries, and they take the gospel into some sort of cross-cultural context where they are involved in two things, witnessing, that is, explaining the gospel to those who are not saved, and then those who are saved need to be trained. They need to be taught the Word of God. So they're involved in both evangelism and teaching in the post-salvation uh, spiritual life. And so Gaius recognizes that their cause is his cause, and it's our cause. Their purpose is his purpose, and it is also our purpose, that we have a role to play in this overall mission. We can't all be out on the front lines. There has to be a logistical support team back home that is taking care of all the details of life. And uh, that means that we have to have folks back home who are involved in uh, prayer. We have to have folks back at home who are involved in giving financially in order to support uh, the mission, the missionary and all of his needs. And I don't know what's involved in all of the missionaries that we support, but I know that this entails not only their uh, personal logistics, food, shelter, and clothing, but also the purchase of supplies, the, the uh, paying uh, for translators, the paying for translators who will translate written documents as well as verbal translators. In some cases, um, hiring office workers, buying office equipment, buying computers. If you think it's become a a little expensive personally because uh, everybody, especially if you have kids, you know that you need to have a a computer, you need to have probably a high-speed hookup. Uh, Now, I don't want any of you kids going home and telling your parents, if you don't have a high-speed hookup, that the pastor said you needed to have a high-speed hookup. But you all feel the pressure for that. Well, think about it if you're a missionary and you're overseas. Now, because of the computer and Internet and email, it's a it's wonderful now for these missionaries because they have instant or almost instant communication with the folks back home. And as many of you know, I'm real close with Jim Myers over in Kiev, and we've just in the past few months discovered Windows Messenger. And hardly a day goes by that I'm not sitting on a computer, and all of a sudden a little thing pops up and says, Jim Myers is online. And, you know, I'll click on what's going on. We'll talk for a few minutes to find out how things are going. And um, one day 
two or three weeks ago, we were working on a project that Jim had been working on with a man down in down in Houston. Project that we're going to put on the website for Chafer Seminary going to be a, a tremendous tool for research and doctrinal information, especially for uh, laymen, uh, pastors who don't have training in the original languages, for Sunday school teachers, anybody who's a student of the Bible. And there's a man in Houston who's been working for years at categorizing, classifying doctrine, and he's been putting it into a format where we can just host this enormous research site. And there were just two of us on Windows Messenger. Within 15 minutes, three of these other guys, two other board members of Chafer Seminary, George Meisinger is the president of Chafer Seminary, Jim Myers, all just happened, you know, in the providence of God to all get online and we ended up working through some problems and having a discussion that went on for for two hours. One guy was in in, uh, Tacoma, another guy was down in Southern California, another man in Houston, I was up here in New England and uh, Jim was over in Kiev and we worked through a lot of uh, problems, just having an online meeting. And so computers are are necessary for for these folks to have, and they need to have the best. They don't need to have the hand-me-downs that that when you get rid of a computer after using it for three years, you want to give it to a missionary. Well, let me tell you, having been a short-term missionary, trying to download email on a third-world telephone line with a 12K hook up on a on a on a modem is just I, I sat one year when, when I was sitting I had to literally sit in a chair and watch my computer screen for how long was that? Three hours. Four hours. And I did it for three hours one day and I had to leave when I got back my computer had cut me off. So I had to start all over again. Somebody had sent me some pictures and I had like one email I had to get to but I had to unload this or download this you know, three megabyte file that took three hours to download before I could get to the important email or even send email out. So, uh, you know, they need the latest, fastest technology possible. And all that is part of grace orientation and generosity and people back home having a real vision. And I don't mean in the mystical sense, but having a vision for missions and understanding missions and their role that they that they have in that, and that's what Gaius understood. He had that vision for missions. So John says they went forth for his namesake, and then the second clause, taking nothing, literally receiving nothing. It's the uh, present active participle of lambano, meaning just simply to receive. It's not that he didn't take anything, but they didn't receive anything. They weren't even going to let the the unbelievers give them anything. They did not want their ministry tainted by anyone saying, well, they're just here to make money. They're just here to get what they can take from us. So they ran on a completely grace-oriented basis. They didn't even take it if it was offered because they did not want finances to somehow confuse the issue. So they, if they're, if, and that's the modus operandi for all missionaries in terms of evangelism. Now, if you're a missionary and you, you, you have two thrusts. One is evangelism and the second is training. Now, once you have an effective 
evangelistic ministry and you get 40, 50, 60, 100, 200 people saved, then you have to form a church. You have to start teaching and training them, and part of that training should include giving. But it will be a long time before a local church will be able to have a self-supporting missionary in some third-world country. They need to have support from back home in order to keep things going because in many cases, in many different countries around the world, the people have so little that what's involved in keeping that ministry going is a lot more than the sum total of the resources of the people in in the local congregation. So a, a missionary only has... Uh, a, a missionary has a legitimate right to take money only after they're saved, after they've established a local church, and that money goes to that local church. And it doesn't go to the missionary uh, personally. It just goes to helping out with the needs in that local church, maybe uh, helping out with those who are unemployed, those who have uh, financial needs, taking care of, uh, widows and others who have particular uh, problems. So the principle is that the missionary does not, and the evangelist does not take up a collection. When they have these evangelistic crusades, they should never take up a collection. Those those evangelistic crusades or anything that an evangelist does should be completely uh, underwritten before he ever goes there so that he does not give the appearance of being dependent on uh, unbelievers for money, or that he is there simply for the money. So this purpose clause that we have here, uh, or this uh, this explanatory clause here, explains the motivation for Gaius that because they went forth for his name's sake, because their motivation was the was evangelism and teaching the word. And they took nothing from the Gentiles. And here it's not just Gentiles, it's unbelieving Gentiles. They took nothing from the unbelieving Gentiles. He made sure he could do everything he could above and beyond the call of duty in order to support these missionaries. And then John draws his conclusion in verse 8. We therefore, see this is a conclusion from starting in verse 5, we therefore ought to receive such. The application is not just Gaius, but we all believers, therefore, ought to receive such, such men as these, such evangelists and uh, teachers. We ought to receive such in the same manner. And this word, this word for receive is the word hupa lambano. It's the word uh, hupa, hupa lambano, and it has the idea of... of um, uh, receiving uh, un, uh, uh, warmly, accepting, receiving with hospitality. It's a word that's only used five times in the New Testament. And so John says, we therefore ought to, and there's our main verb, present active indicative of a, a, a fellow, which means here it almost has an imperatival sense. This is an obligation for us. As believers, we have a certain obligation to support missionaries and evangelists. There's no other way that they can be supported if it were not for our uh, gifts and offerings. So John makes the point, and it's almost a mandate, we ought to receive such that we may become fellow workers of the truth. 
when we do this, when we participate with them, we become a soon ergo, a fellow worker, a joint worker. We become a participant. We become part of the team with reference to the truth. And there we have again the uh, definite article with Aletheia. We become fellow workers uh, with reference to the truth. It is a, a dative of reference or perhaps in association with the truth, a dative of association. So the conclusion then is that, first of all, that the motivation for the evangelist, the pastor, teacher, the missionary, is to explain the gospel or to teach the truth. That's what motivates it. It is for his name's sake. It is not for financial gain, personal prestige, power, approbation, or recognition. Now, somebody's going to look around a few places and say, well, who would ever think a missionary would get in it for the money? But there are some that do. In fact, there's a lot of slovenliness and laziness on the mission field. And there are people, in, especially in denominational missions, where there's no direct accountability with a local church, where there there is a tremendous amount of laziness, where these guys can go out and they can be in some place and not do uh, much work at all, and they just have that monthly check coming in from the denomination. And I've heard many different stories about that. But that is not true for every uh, missionary. They are there because of their desire to take the word to the lost, and many, many missionaries go through incredible sacrifices in order to be on the mission field. They're not there for approbation or recognition. Second point, missionaries doing evangelism and evangelists should never, ever seek financial support from unbelievers, never ask for money or even receive money from unbelievers. Third point, believers back home are to financially support the missionary. Believers back home are to financially support the missionary. This makes you a part of the team. Find out what their needs are. That's why we try to publish in the bulletin uh, the prayer letters from the missionary. So you have some idea of what's going on, what their needs are. What, uh, not, not that they're begging for money, should never be taken that way. Not that they're asking for money. But if you don't know what's going on, then you can't help. And so it's important to have some idea of what their dreams, what their visions are, what they hope to accomplish, what they're trying to do, uh, in their area uh, of operation. And that makes us part of the team. So we are all part of the team with each of these missionaries that we support. Now, in conclusion, I want to sum up some things that we've learned about the character of Gaius. Now, we need to see this because there's a tremendous contrast in this epistle between Gaius on the one hand and Diotrephes on the other. Gaius is humble. Gaius is positive. Gaius is praiseworthy. On the other hand, Diotrephes is self-absorbed and arrogant. He is trying to build his own little empire, and he rejects the truth. So let's get a character analysis of Gaius. First of all, we know that this is a man who loves the truth. He loves the Word of God. He wants to learn the Word of God. He wants to apply the Word of God. He is consistently applying doctrine. He walks by means of the truth. Twice, John emphasizes that. He is a man who walks by means of the truth. There is application of doctrine in his life. This is a man who has character transformation because of the Word of God. Character matters. Therefore, as a result of that, we know that there is doctrinal orientation there. He is thinking biblically. And as a result of thinking biblically, 
He has grace orientation. He is demonstrating hospitality and generosity. This comes only from grace orientation and genuine humility. Grace orientation always develops your genuine humility because you realize that nothing you have comes from yourself. It all comes from God, and therefore it's not something for us to hold on to. Everything we have in life, your house, your car, your children, everything that you have in life is a gift from God. Therefore, it's not something that you earn. And therefore, it's not something for you to grab hold of and keep in a selfish, self-centered manner. As a result of his grace orientation, then, he can have real hospitality and generosity because he recognizes that everything he has is from the Lord and has a purpose, and that is to share uh, his financial blessing with those who are serving the Lord to support them, that the Lord didn't bless him as much as he had, and I'm not saying he was wealthy. Do you realize that probably 80% of church support and mission support comes from the small, regular donations of everyday believers, that most believers who get to be really wealthy, and sometimes we all, and we all, all fall into the trap, well, if I just made more money, I'd give more money. Well, that usually isn't true. People who make more money spend more money. People who make more money are afraid of losing that money, and they tie it up in investments in other ways where they can't always use it. Now, I have been very blessed in my life with some uh, folks who have the gift of giving and who are incredibly supportive of this ministry. And we, as a church, have been blessed by people who don't live here, who have uh, helped finance several things related to this uh, congregation. And uh, that's a tremendous blessing. And when I travel places, I'm always impressed. There's a few places that I go and if I if I go into that area, somebody will find out I'm there, and they'll call me up and they say, well, do you have a car? I'll meet you at the airport, and you can borrow my car while you're here. you got a place to stay. I mean, they just want to make sure that everything is taken care of above and beyond. Then you go other places, and you don't have quite that, that sense of generosity or hospitality. But for the most part, I do, and that's the kind of hospitality and generosity exhibited by Gaius. Uh, furthermore, we see that he's generous with his time. In order to be hospitable to people, in order to open up your home and have this kind of uh, uh, openness and and uh, and warmth, there needs to be some. Uh, there needs to be a certain amount of uh, generosity with time with money and possessions. And he recognizes that God has blessed him with what he has, time, money, possessions, in order to use some of that to support the gospel ministry. And the principle here is that God provides all of us with whatever resources we have so that we use a part of that to support the local church and to support missions not just so that we can have a more comfortable lifestyle. So we learn from all of this that Gaius is a generous and gracious host. He's warm and welcoming. He provides food and lodging. He supplies. He uh, gives whatever supplies they need. He takes care of transportation, whatever assistance they need, and he takes care of as much, many of their creature comforts as he can. He doesn't just meet the basic level. It's not just, okay, what's the minimum expectation here? He's not meager. He is not uh, grudging in his support. It's 
generosity. And this is what comes from a grace-oriented congregation. When you support missionaries, it's not, okay, what's the minimum they need to get the job done? Now, you can ask that two ways. What's the minimum they need? And let's make sure we go way beyond that. But there's other folks who say, what's the minimum they need? Well, let's just just meet that. And then there's other Christian organizations, and this always has just really burned me. There are other Christian organizations that take the idea that, well, if you're going to work for us, we're going to pay you, and then they give you a salary that's about 60 or 75% less than what the market bears for that job because, oh, you have the prestige of teaching in our seminary or working for our ministry, and this is such a wonderful privilege. I tell you, privilege doesn't put food on the table or pay the rent. And churches, when they hire staff, should say, okay, what is the minimum here or what is, what can we afford? Let's be generous. Let's go above and beyond because that's what grace does. Grace always goes above and beyond. It is not based on what the person does. You don't come along in Christian organizations and say, oh, you're working 40 hours a week. Let me see. If you were doing this in the secular world, you'd get paid this much money, so that's what I'm going to pay you. Well, you might use that as a starting point and say, okay, just to exhibit the principle of grace, we're going to give you 15% more. Because if the grace isn't demonstrated in the pay scale of a ministry, a grace-oriented ministry, then where are we going to see grace demonstrated? It's not based on who and what the person does. That's legalism. It's based on the generosity and the provision of God. So... Gaius is a man who understands this, but Diotrephes does not. So we come to verse 9. Verse 9, and we'll just barely get started in our introduction here uh, and come back and hit the hardcore next week. John then says to Gaius, now Gaius is just a member of the local church. He's not a pastor. He's not, uh, he's not in the leadership. He is just a member of the local church. And now we find out why. Uh, why John has had to write uh, Gaius this, this letter. He says, I wrote something to the church, but Diotrephes, who loves to be first, he loves to be preeminent among them, does not accept what we say. Therefore, in verse 10, he says, If I come, I will call to mind his deeds, which he does, prating against us with malicious words, and not content with that, he himself does not receive the brethren. What did Gaius do? Gaius received the brethren and strangers. Diotrephes doesn't receive the brethren. He has no vision for missions. He has no involvement with missions. He is not generous. He's not hospitable. He is not warm and welcoming. He is a tightwad. He is self-absorbed. He is just the opposite of Gaius. And so we see this contrast set up between the two. Let's have a little character analysis of Diotrephes, uh, and we'll get into the analysis of the passage next time. First of all, he rejects authority and he rejects truth. When John says, I wrote to the truth, John is writing. He's an apostle. He is the elder. He's the pastor, even though he is in absentia. He is the pastor of this local congregation. So Diotrephes rejects his authority, and in verse 10 we see he does not re he, he does not receive us at all. He doesn't, or excuse me, in verse 9, it's the end of verse 9, he does not receive us. So 
Diotrephes rejects authority and he rejects doctrine. Gaius was submitted to the authority of John. He was, he had, uh, true humility and teachability and he was grace oriented. He welcomed the truth. Diotrephes rejected the truth. Second, Diotrephes is arrogant. He loves to have the preeminence. He loves to be first. He wants to be uh, out there getting all of the attention, whereas Gaius is operating in the background. He is uh, hospitable. He's supportive of the missionaries, but he's not doing it to draw attention to himself. Furthermore, if you skip down to verse 11, where John makes another uh a point of application, he says, Beloved, do not imitate what is evil, but what is good. So he is classifying Diotrephes' behavior as evil. Now, Diotrephes is not an unbeliever, as we'll see. He's a believer, but he is a believer operating on the sin nature, in carnality, full of himself, operating on the arrogant skills. And so there is a contrast here. Diotrephes is walking in evil, therefore he's walking in darkness in John's terminology, and Gaius is walking in the light. Fourth, he is ejecting people from the congregation. Let me see, that's the first time I've used a number. One, he's rejecting authority and rejecting truth. Two, he's arrogant. Three, he's walking in darkness. Fourth, he is ejecting people from the congregation. He doesn't receive the brethren, and he forbids those who wish to, putting them out of the church. So if you wanted to be a grace-oriented missionary supporter in that church, this guy, who's probably a deacon, is uh, exerting his authority and kicking those people out of the church. In fact, it's it's kind of a funny note. One of the well-known and older commentaries is a set called Word Pictures in the New Testament by by A.T. Robertson, who's a classic Greek scholar, well-known uh, commentator uh, from the late 19th century, early 20th century. And he has a little note there that that he he said. Uh, that in the early part of the 20th century, he wrote an article on Diotrephes for a denominational paper, and uh, the editors of the paper told him that some 40 or 50 deacons wrote in and canceled their subscription to the paper because they thought the article was about them. <laughs> so, this is a real problem in churches, is you get people who are in leadership because they want the approbation and they want to power and to lord it over other people. So Diotrephes is lording it over other people, ejecting people from the congregation. Fifth point, he is imperious, cold, and authoritarian. He doesn't care about people. He just cares about power and his own agenda. And then finally, sixth, he's involved with sins of the tongue. He is maligning, slandering, and gossiping about the Apostle John. So rather than welcoming the truth and those who support the truth, walking in the truth, and supporting those who promote the truth, he is self-serving. That makes him antagonistic to missionaries who are supporting the truth. Now, we live in an age where missions is really falling on hard times. There's always been problems supporting missions and missionaries. Uh, often people make the mistake. I'm just going to give you a couple of things that are happening today, and we'll hit some real hard points next time. First of all, we've always had people who just want to rationalize it. Well, somebody else will do it. I just don't have the money this month to support a missionary. Somebody else will do it. I don't want to go to the mission field. Let somebody else go. So it's that rationalization that gets to the point, point two, the second of uh, uh, strategy 
in uh, opposing missions is the divine rationalization strategy. If God wants them to be saved, then he'll save them without any help for you and from you or me. And that was the statement of John Rylands to uh uh Will, who was that William uh forgot his last name now. Last week when we studied on missions that um uh, that was the uh hyper-Calvinist argument that if God wants someone saved then he'll do it without any help for you or me. And then today we live in an era where there is hostility to the truth. Hostility to the truth. And this is rearing its ugly head in a number of different ways. And one that just came to my attention in the last couple of weeks just floors me. Absolutely floors me. And this is coming, this is becoming a popular idea now. In fact, uh, there's a book out on salvation. I can't remember the exact name and it doesn't matter. By a former professor of mine at Dallas Seminary who is a pastor of an extremely large church in the Dallas area and well-known nationally syndicated radio uh, program. And in this book, in the last chapter on this book on salvation, he is explaining, uh, what about those who never heard? And he's giving his answer to that. The first half of the chapter is solid. He talks about what about infants or those who who are brain damaged or whatever, and they can't even understand the gospel, never get to an age of accountability. They're saved. But he then uses that to extrapolate to the view that that same principle applies to those in, the, in Africa, India, South America, wherever, who never heard the gospel, because God's not going to hold them accountable for something they never heard. See, he completely ignores the fact that God has a nonverbal witness to his existence in the creation, that heavens declare the glory of God, the firmament shows his handiwork. Romans 1, that we know God's invisible attributes from his creation. And so at that point, people can express positive or negative volition. They want to know more about God. And if they do want to know more about God, God and his faithfulness will get the gospel to them. And in missions, our study of the history of missions, Last week and the week before, I hope you noticed that, that there's a tremendous amount of missionary activity down through the centuries, most of which we don't know about just because it wasn't recorded in history. But in this book, what he argues, think about this principle. What he says is that if you're down in the bush in Africa and nobody ever told you the gospel, then you never rejected it, therefore you're going to go to heaven. What's the implication? Don't give the guy the gospel. I mean, if he if he doesn't have the gospel, he'll go to heaven. But if you give him the gospel and he rejects it, then he won't go to he- then he won't go to heaven. So don't give him the gospel. In other words, don't send a missionary. Missionary will just make him accountable, and he'll go to hell. So was it three weeks ago, four weeks ago? Charlie Clough was up here, and he and I had lunch one day. And Charlie was talking about a mutual acquaintance of ours who's the president of a, of a fairly large missionary organization to Muslims. He used to be in Tehran many years ago. His name's Pat Kate. And Pat Kate, in a recent conversation with Charlie, had noted that this is a real problem at missions conferences now with missionaries, that many missionaries are buying into this theology that those who haven't heard get to skate free and they're going to get to heaven because they never rejected the gospel. Talk about buying into a Trojan horse theology that undercuts the whole purpose for missions. 
And let me tell you, this is just the sort of the tip of the iceberg in terms of the attacks that are being made in the realm of missions today. And, of course, missions is so important because part of the uh, responsibility of the church is to send out missionaries. And as a church sends out missionaries, uh, reflecting the grace orientation and doctrinal orientation of congregations, that impacts the 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 entire nation, because part of the purpose of a national entity that's being blessed by God is to send out missionaries. And that is one reason God has protected this country for so long is because there are so many thousands and thousands of missionaries taking the gospel. We have, you may not know this, there are missionaries in Afghanistan translating the gospel into all kinds of tribal languages. There are there are missionaries in Pakistan. There are missionaries in Tajikistan and Kazakhstan and and all of those different areas. And there are missionaries in Iraq now who are taking the gospel. We don't ever hear about them, and we shouldn't, because that would put their lives in danger. But we need to be praying about these people. And they are supported by local churches, by believers here in this country. And that is one reason God supports, continues to support and protect this country and keep us from the, the destructive things that, that so many of our enemies would bring on us. And this is to encourage us and to challenge us in this area. But if we quit supporting missions as a nation, then we will come under the judgment of God because there will no longer be a support base here for the truth. And that is what's important in our life, the priority of the truth, the priority of Bible doctrine and getting the gospel out and training believers to grow to spiritual maturity with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we do thank you for this opportunity to study your word this morning, to be challenged by the grace orientation, by the generosity, the the humility, the hospitality of Gaius and recognize that that is the kind of character that is produced in a maturing believer, his vision for supporting missionaries and supporting those who go forth for your name's sake. Father, we pray that if there's anyone here this morning who's unsure of their salvation, uncertain of their eternal destiny, that they would understand the gospel this morning, that it is not what you do that matters, it's what you believe. It's your relationship to Jesus Christ, that we can never do anything good enough to merit salvation. But Jesus Christ died on the cross where he paid the penalty for our sins. And if we trust in him, rely upon him, put our faith alone in Christ alone, then we will have eternal life, a a free gift that is never, ever taken from us. Father, we pray that if there's anyone here this morning that is not saved, that they would take this opportunity to make that certain in their own life. Father, we pray that you would challenge us with the things that we have studied this morning. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.